0: Delirium is one of the most serious problems facing hospitalized patients. It nearly doubles a patient's risk of death and often produces irreversible cognitive and functional impairment. It's extremely common occurring in approximately one in five inpatients with even higher rates among patients in surgery units and intensive care units. Despite the high prevalence, more than half of delirium cases go undetected. In this podcast, we will review key points in the diagnosis, workup and management of this acute confusional state. Welcome to the Carlat Psychiatry Podcast. This is a special episode from the Carlat Hospital Psychiatry Report. I'm Dr. Victoria Hendrick, editor-in-chief of the Carlat Hospital Psychiatry Report and a clinical professor at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. I'm also the Director of Inpatient Psychiatry at Oliveview UCLA Medical Center. I'm
1: Prabhjot Gill. I'm the Podcast Content Coordinator at Carlot Publishing, and I will be attending graduate school this year to receive my doctorate in psychology. To effectively identify and treat delirium, we must have a thorough understanding of its clinical features. Delirium describes an acute change from a patient's baseline mental status and is marked by inattention
0: disorientation, and thought disorganization. Symptoms fluctuate throughout the day and patients may appear lucid for brief periods. Additionally, their sleep-wake cycles are often disrupted and they may demonstrate a broad range of emotions or even experience hallucinations. So Dr. Hendrick, what are the different classifications of delirium? Delirium is categorized into hypoactive, hyperactive, and mixed. Patients experiencing hypoactive delirium may go undetected since they appear withdrawn and may seem to be resting peacefully. When we receive a consult for depression, we make sure to evaluate the patient for hypoactive delirium. On the other hand, patients experiencing hyperactive delirium require close attention on medical or surgical floors. These patients are agitated and hypervigilant and often are combative or refuse care. We consider a consult for psychosis or mania to actually be a hyperactively delirious patient until proven otherwise. Patients in a mixed delirium state alternate between the hypoactive and hyperactive states. Certain factors put individuals at a greater risk for developing
1: this condition. They include a history of delirium, being over the age of 65, having pre existing cognitive impairment or dementia, taking multiple medications. And having underlying medical conditions. These are what we refer to as predisposing risk factors.
0: In addition to these predisposing factors, there are certain triggers known as precipitating factors that directly contribute to the onset of delirium. They include taking certain medications like anticholinergics or opioids, having acute medical conditions such as meningitis, sepsis, or stroke, undergoing surgery, experiencing dehydration, being physically restrained, going through alcohol or drug withdrawal, or experiencing prolonged sleep deprivation. The more risk factors present, the greater the likelihood of delirium occurring. So how should clinicians approach identifying and evaluating for delirium? First, it's important to speak with a provider taking care of the patient and to carefully review the patient's chart, paying close attention to recent changes in their vital signs, labs, and medications. When we go into the patient's room, we start with basic questions about their comfort in the hospital, food intake, et cetera, as we attempt to build rapport. These questions help us assess the patient's level of alertness and cognitive impairment, as well as any distress or paranoia. Patients often don't remember everything clearly, so it's also useful to get collateral history from nurses, therapists, and family members. Diagnosing delirium can be complicated due to its fluctuating course.
1: Patients may present with normal mental status for one healthcare provider, but be sleepy, disorganized, or wildly confused for another. So, repeat evaluations are critical to make an accurate diagnosis. Dr. Hendrick, are there any tools you recommend using to improve delirium screening? and diagnosis?
0: Yes, definitely. There are several useful tools available to improve delirium screening and diagnosis. One commonly used tool is the Confusion Assessment Method, CAM, which is widely recognized around the world and has high sensitivity and specificity, over 90%, as well as high interrater reliability. There's also a shortened version known as the 3-Minute Diagnostic Assessment CAM, or 3D CAM. For critically ill patients in the ICU, we use the CAM ICU. Another good tool is the 4As test, 4AT, which is a brief under two minutes screening instrument that requires no special training and is available in multiple languages. The 4As in the 4A test stand for alertness, attention, abbreviated mental test for, and acute change. Although its sensitivity and specificity are slightly lower than the CAM, it remains a valuable option. Other tests of attention can also be helpful, such as asking the patient to spell world backwards, subtract serial sevens or threes, repeat a span of digits, or recite the days of the week or the months of the year in reverse order.
1: How can clinicians go about figuring out what's causing a patient's delirium?
0: To begin, we start with a physical and neurologic exam, looking at vital signs, medications, including new or recently stopped, and whether the patient has been using alcohol or drugs. We also check for possible infections, metabolic or electrolyte issues, and make sure to rule out any life-threatening causes like Wernicke's encephalopathy, hypoxia, hypoglycemia, hypertension, hyper or hypothermia, intracerebral hemorrhage, meningitis, encephalitis, poisoning, and status epilepticus. If available, we also look through the nursing notes and flow sheets for any indicators of pain, bowel or bladder function, and recent malnutrition or dehydration.
1: So we've talked about the causes and features of
0: delirium. Well, what can be done to prevent and treat it? To reduce the incidence of delirium, Non-pharmacologic and multi-component strategies are very effective, especially in non-ICU patients. Orientation and cognitive stimulation, as well as sleep enhancement, are two of the most important strategies. So we provide patients with adequate lighting, signs, calendars, and clocks to help them stay oriented to time, place, person, and to your role. And we encourage activities that stimulate patients' cognitive abilities, such as reminiscing, and we facilitate regular visits from family and friends. For sleep enhancement, we try to avoid medical or nursing procedures during sleep whenever possible and schedule medications in a way that won't disrupt sleep. It's also important to reduce nighttime noise levels. We strongly recommend using melatonin, like 1 to 5 milligrams PO at bedtime, or ramelteon, 8 milligrams PO at bedtime, to help patients maintain regular sleep patterns in the hospital.
1: Can you tell me more about early mobilization, hydration, infection prevention, and nutrition
0: assistance? Absolutely. Early mobilization is crucial and encourages patients to move around as soon as possible after surgery. We recommend regular ambulation, and we keep walking aids like canes or walkers nearby. Range of motion exercises are also helpful. Hydration is another important strategy. We encourage patients to drink fluids, and if necessary, we provide IV fluids. However, for patients with comorbidities like heart failure or renal disease, it's important to seek advice on fluid balance. Infection prevention is also key. We look for and treat any infections, avoid unnecessary catheterizations, and implement infection control procedures to prevent the spread of infections. Lastly, regarding nutrition assistance, we seek advice from the hospital dietitian. For patients with dentures, we make sure they fit properly so patients can maintain proper nutrition.
1: We also recommend several other strategies. To begin, it's important to assess oxygenation status by checking for hypoxia and monitoring oxygen saturation. Pain management is another important strategy. Assess for pain, especially in patients with communication difficulties. One monitor pain management in patients with known or suspected pain. Review the patient's medication list for both types and number of medications as part of the psychoactive medication review strategy. Lastly, work on resolving reversible causes of vision and hearing impairment. For example, ensure hearing and visual aids are available, working, and being used by patients.
0: And remember that if patients become delirious despite these interventions, it's still important to continue the strategies we mentioned to prevent further worsening of the delirium. Moving on to treatment, the first-line approach is to quickly address any underlying medical causes. In some cases, agitated patients with hyperactive or mixed delirium may not respond to non-pharmacologic strategies or verbal redirection. Antipsychotics are the most frequently used class of medications for delirium treatment, despite lacking FDA approval for this indication. However, studies have shown limited effectiveness on mortality or the duration and severity of delirium. So if antipsychotics are shown to have
1: limited effectiveness, is there any reason to use antipsychotic medications
0: for delirium? They can still be helpful for patients who are acutely agitated and at risk of harming themselves or others, or who are distressed, often due to severe anxiety or psychotic symptoms such as paranoia or hallucinations, or patients who have not responded to attempts at verbal redirection or other behavioral strategies. So, which antipsychotics do you recommend? Typical and atypical antipsychotics are both useful with the choice of medication influenced by availability, route of administration, and staff familiarity. For most patients, the gold standard is to start with haloperidol IV as needed in cardiac monitored settings given the risk of QT prolongation and torsade, with a dosage of 0.5 to 5 milligrams based on age, size, and severity of agitation. However, if the initial dose is ineffective after 20 to 30 minutes, subsequent doses can be doubled until the patient is calm. In older patients, we typically start with lower doses and use caution for patients with Parkinsonism, HIV-associated dementia, or evidence of Lewy body disease. In these cases, we often use olanzapine with a dose of 2.5 to 5 milligrams that can be given IM or in a dissolvable oral form if necessary. If there is any concern, For active or recent neuroleptic malignant syndrome, we avoid antipsychotics entirely. We obtain a baseline ECG to assess and trend QTC when we use antipsychotics, although in emergent situations, we must weigh the risk of QT prolongation against the risks to patient and staff safety. What are the potential risks associated with using antipsychotics to manage agitation in delirious patients? Great question. Given their potential sedative effects, antipsychotics can give us a false sense of reassurance that the delirium has been effectively treated while the medical issues remain unaddressed. This can lead to a transition towards a more hypoactive delirium with associated risks, such as aspiration and immobility. What should clinicians do if antipsychotics are contraindicated? If antipsychotics are contraindicated, maybe because of cardiac comorbidities or QT prolongation, there are alternative initial treatments we can use, like valproic acid. We started at 125 to 250 milligrams three times daily, and it can be administered IV if necessary. This medication provides additional benefits for patients with delirium who have a history of a mood disorder, traumatic brain injury, or dementia. In addition, you can also consider alpha-2 agonists, such as dexmedetomidine tomidine or clonidine 0.1. To 0.2 milligrams every six hours, especially when transitioning patients from dexamide, a, tomidine to clonidine in non-ICU settings. Trazodone, starting at 25 to 50 milligrams at bedtime, is a useful option for targeting both agitation and sleep cycle disturbances. It's worth noting that we generally avoid benzodiazepines as they can worsen delirium, and we only use them in cases of delirium secondary to alcohol or sedative or hypnotic withdrawal. The FDA's recent FDA approval of a sublingual formulation of dexmedetomidine, also known as IGALMI, is likely to expand its use to other settings besides emergency rooms and ICUs, such as medical and psychiatric inpatient units.
1: Overall, remember that delirium is a common yet frequently missed condition in hospitalized patients. It's linked with functional and cognitive decline and a significantly elevated risk of death. Non-pharmacological multi-component interventions, including cognitive stimulation, frequent reorientation, and sleep improvement, are highly effective in preventing its onset. Amuse medications sparingly, primarily to keep patients and staff safe and to help patients be more comfortable while you work to identify and treat the underlying cause.
0: The newsletter clinical update is available for subscribers to read in the Carlatte Hospital Psychiatry Report. Hopefully, people will check it out. Subscribers get print issues in the mail and email notifications when new issues are available on the website. Subscriptions also come with full access to all the articles on the website and CME credits. And everything from Carlotte Publishing is independently researched and produced.
1: There's no funding from the pharmaceutical industry.
0: Yes, and the newsletters and books we produce depend entirely on reader support. There are no ads, and our authors don't receive industry funding. That helps us to bring you unbiased information that you can trust.
1: And don't forget, you can now earn CME credits for listening to our podcast. Just click the link in the description to access the CME post-test for this episode. As always, thanks for listening and have a great day.